On August 15th, yesterday, the Taliban entered the Afghan capital, Kabul, after having rapidly swept to power throughout the country. Amid growing chaos, the U.S. has been trying frantically to airlift some of its diplomats to safety. What explains the fall of Afghanistan? In 2001, U.S. forces targeted the Taliban's Islamic totalitarian regime, which had harbored the 9-11 plotters. So what's gone wrong since then in the last 20 years? Welcome to the New Ideal podcast. I'm Ilan Jerno. I'm joined today by my colleague, Ankar Gatte. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Ilan. So it's a grim day, and I thought the place to start is just to identify what is your reaction to this brewing and growing crisis in Afghanistan? Uh, it's a combination of sentiments, all negative. So it's, it's horrifying to see what is happening. It's dismaying that it's come to this. And it's shameful that this is what U.S. foreign policy 20 years, so we're almost at to the day, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And if somebody said this 20 years from now, this is what where we will be at, and this is where in Afghanistan, what the outcome will look like, I think almost everyone would have said, no, that's impossible. Whatever we do, it can't be that bad. And yet um, it is. And there's definite reasons for why we're at this unbelievably depressing state. I think it's worth saying, uh, to go back to what people would have said 20 years ago, if you described to the scenes we're seeing in the news right now, where people are rushing to the airport to flee the country, they've been leaving in cars and vans just to get across the border. There's real panic in the country. And, and the, the Taliban, I think, are... I hope they're well known for their evil. And this is the group that made Islamic totalitarianism well known initially. They forbade, uh, they controlled basically anything you could do. And especially if you're a woman, you couldn't leave the house, you had to cover up. And this was a real imposition of a harsh uh, uh, system where everything was subordinated to religious law. And the thing that I think people, really have to appreciate about why this was so unthinkable 20 years ago and even today is that the taliban militarily are nothing militarily they're nothing i mean they, they have weapons and they have improvised explosive devices they have some uh communications devices but they're compared to the u.s military they don't they don't begin to measure on the same scale the u.s military is so far advanced and i think this is part of what makes this such a tragedy, which was, and I think our view going back 20 years, and we dig into this a bit more, that the, if you took just the isolated goal of, can we eliminate the Taliban? Can we eliminate Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan? If you just take it at that level, judging militarily, there's no question we could do it. Uh, we're way more powerful. And yet here we are, after 20 years of war, America is, is leaving, with nothing like a victory. In fact, as you put it, it's really shameful the way in which this has unraveled in the last two days, much faster than I think uh, most people even imagined with the worst scenarios in mind. Yeah, whatever lessons one takes from this, it can't be the lesson that militarily 
the US is weaker or less capable than I had thought. So if, if someone's thinking that, it's you're not really grappling with what has gone on in Afghanistan for 20 years, because whatever conclusion you reach, it cannot be the conclusion that militarily we're less powerful than we thought we were. So I, I thought it's useful just to sketch a little about what's going on. And again, this is as of 10 minutes ago when I was still reading the news, so much of this is still unfolding. But as of this morning, the Taliban raised their flag over the capital. They entered the presidential palace. I think people around the country, and particularly in the capital, to which a lot of people have fled in the weeks uh, since, in the, in the preceding weeks, because they felt the capital at least was the one place the government would protect. So there's a, a concentration of people who fled other areas that the Taliban had taken over, hoping to find refuge in the capital. And now that has fallen too. The capital uh, has seen the, the leader flee. I think he fled yesterday to somewhere undisclosed uh, in a real show of cowardice, I think. And here in, in the capital, people are already moving to accommodate themselves to what they know the Taliban is going to be like. So there are posters and, and shop displays featuring women who are not uh, uh, wearing a veil or a religious scar, and they're being painted over. And people are, are closing their shops, fearing that the Taliban will loot them, because that is one of the things that they do. People are not going to work because they fear that if you work for any government or municipal agency, you will be targeted as a collaborator with the enemy, which, which in the Taliban's eyes is the United States. And I think one scene that's really important to stress is just, and this has been over a lot of the news coverage, the scenes at the airport. And I think this is something that uh, you, you really have to watch some of these videos that have come out, certainly cell phone videos of hundreds and hundreds of people clustering around the airport, but not inside. I don't know what the scenes are like inside, but they're on the runways. They're trying to board planes. There's a video of people who have climbed onto a part of an airplane, a US military uh, transport on the wheel flaps, trying to just grab onto it and hoping presumably that either they can get in or that they can stay attached while it's in the air, which I can't imagine that to be uh, at all a reasonable expectation. And just the, the, I think the, the scenes now have led to the airport being closed because it's just not possible to land planes. There's really uncertainty about what will happen. And these people are fleeing for their lives. They're, they're, they know what they're going to face under the Taliban. And this, I think this is part of the human tragedy that we're seeing. And I think it's, it, it's really de depressing that here we are, this is, uh, as you put it, 20 years almost to the day, and th the country is just falling apart back into the hands of the forces that we were, that America had sent troops to, to combat. And part of what makes it so shameful is that many of these people are people who have worked with the, either the American military or sort of the more civilian aspects of trying of, of the Americans there trying to build a, a better government and a better kind of civil society there or and more broadly it will be people who've collaborated and worked with the western powers that have been there I mean there was a whole NATO force there for many years there was many other countries than just the U.S. 
And there's ample reason to think all these people will be targeted by the Taliban as this is now their vengeance. And the idea that um, we have not been able to get these people out of the country and haven't been kind of working over time to get them out of the country. And now there's this kind of scrambling and, and passing the buck and well, you've got to fill out the appropriate paperwork. And so that, this is part of what leads to the spectacle that it's, it, this is not a military defeat. This is, it's shameful because there's no reason it should have come to this. And even if you're evacuating, you could have got these people out. Um, there was plenty of time to do that. And it was the, the, that we have not, and that we would, the, the idea that anybody would want to ally with the US, if this is how we treat allies, um, th that is one of the repercussions of this event. And, there, and you can't live it down. I think it's worth digging in a bit more into, so what, what went wrong here and what do we, how do we view this? And I, I want to put us, we can mention, but I think we should quickly dispense with some of the explanations of what happened. So one of the questions that was bubbling up yesterday when this was all unfolding is, oh, the withdrawal timeline didn't make sense. It should have, we needed an extra few months because the fighting is seasonal. I don't know if you saw some of these kind of things in the weeks leading up and even over the weekend. And the idea that if we just tweaked the withdrawal schedule, a lot of this would have been prevented. I don't know that that would have made a fundamental difference and maybe it would have delayed things. Maybe some of the people that we wanted to evacuate, we could have done sooner. I don't know. I, I find that hard to believe. And I think the other kinds of questions about, well, there was a peace deal and we had to honor the peace deal and this set of certain schedule. I think these are all at, at the most sort of most charitable way to put it is they're superficial. They're really ignoring a whole history of what has happened there, that some of these are, are you know, the, the people often like to talk about shifting the deck chairs on the Titanic, that it's not really going to make a difference to what's happening to the overall direction. And I think some of these kinds of arguments are like that, that there are things you can dispute about some of the details, but I don't think they get to the fundamentals. And that's what I want to dig into here. So uh, if we go back to 9-11, let, let's just paint the scene of what things were like and what the US approach should have been, and then contrast that to what it actually was, and then sort of play it through the next two decades. So uh, how would you characterize this, the, the way people thought about this issue in the aftermath of 9-11? I think for those who were not either around or not old enough to be following the news, during 9-11, you cannot underestimate how much of a shock to the nation that it was that we could be attacked on our own soil. You watch on live TV as the Twin Towers fall. You see the aftermath of a plane crashing into the Pentagon. You see another plane in uh, Pennsylvania that has come down. Uh, it comes out later that it's because the passengers on the plane um, fought with the, the hijackers. That was destined for somewhere in Washington, maybe the capital that, that they wanted to fly into. The, so that this could happen in on US soil 
not it's a bombing somewhere in the Middle East that most Americans couldn't even find on the map, that it was, there was, so there was real fear, but there was outrage. And there was a willingness to think, I think, that we need to change our policy, that there's something that's fundamentally gone wrong. That's not the same as being able to identify what has fundamentally gone wrong, but that the thought is crossing people's minds that something has fundamentally gone wrong in the way that we think about the Middle East and the threats there and how we are dealing with them. There was an opportunity to reset American foreign policy. And people thought, and this include even objectivists thought, oh, George Bush is resetting this. And, the, and there was some rhetoric that if you took it out of context of everything else being said and being discussed by the administration and those surrounding the administration, there are some things you could take out of context that sounded like, okay, now we're have come to admit that the enemy we face is different than what how we've thought of it before, and it's there's an axis of evil to take one of George Bush's um, George W. Bush's uh, phrases, and that we have to confront this and we have to treat it like an axis of evil, and that was obviously trying to echo the axis powers in World War II. Like this is a significant threat, and in regard to Afghanistan, it was there were even ultimatums given to you're harboring terrorists like Al-Qaeda and terrorist organizations. You basically are a terrorist regime and we're demanding that you put an end to this, eliminate every terrorist base, turn, turn over every terrorist in your country. And so there was this kind of ultimatum that was given, but never carried through on. And we can talk about why it was never carried through on and why it really was a paper ultimatum. But there was tremendous shock, anger, a desire to change policy on the part of the people, I think. And the tragedy is the policies adopted after 9-11 that have brought us to, to, to this state. Yeah, I think it's, it's worth just to draw out one of the threads from your comment about George W. Bush and the way people saw him fondly. And I think some of the rhetoric I remember, and I forget if this is specifically around the time of Afghanistan or maybe it came a bit later with the, the move to go after Iraq, but this idea, he was criticized for being a cowboy and people evoked that conception of him as he's rugged and tough and so forth. And this was a criticism and people liked him for it. They thought, yeah, we need a cowboy and this is the direction we, we should be going in. And one of the famous pieces of rhetoric that came out was you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. And so this is a very stark black and white kind of perspective that I think was welcome for people. Yes, there's clarity here. We know what we're gonna do and we will not falter until we succeed in our mission. We will not hesitate. And, and this very powerful rhetoric that I think resonated with people. And I think this goes to, this set up a dismal disappointment for people, a really grim disappointment, I think, in the facts of what actually happened, because none of that, I think, was borne out by the conduct of American policy in Afghanistan. So it's just to, to sketch a bit what, what happened. So the U.S. moved into Afghanistan in October, so pretty rapidly after 9-11. And the goal of the operation, I think, was puzzling, because 
what most people in, in the U.S. expected was, and I think it was heartily supported, is, well, obviously we have to go after al-Qaeda, and obviously we have to go after the Taliban who harbored them and were supportive of them and, and wouldn't give them up. But that really wasn't the exclusive or even the primary objective of the, the mission. And I think what, what unfolded soon after the troops were there is that this was really, and, and Bush was open about this, this became a, an approach which was, we're going to rebuild Afghanistan. We're going to reconstruct everything. We're going to nation build. And this is a term that got thrown around a lot, but that's really what it meant. We're going to, where there was a failed state under the Taliban, we're going to replace it with a democratic, vibrant society with all the, the things that people find appealing about this notion of democracy, which is a very fuzzy term, which I think we should talk about as well. And soon, you, you, you know, the, the whole, the, there's a certain myth that grew around Afghanistan, which was we toppled the Taliban rapidly. And that's true, the Taliban regime, but that doesn't mean we actually got the Taliban leadership and captured or killed them or even went after uh, the, the al-Qaeda forces that were there. And I think this is part of what needs to be demystified is that they were largely left to flee. And many of them found refuge in the areas and the borders between Afghanistan and Pakistan, which enabled them later to come back and regroup and, and, and mount a, a campaign to retake the country. So let's dig in a bit about where, what things went wrong here, because I, I don't think it's, oh, we didn't have the right military materials. We didn't have enough troops. I mean, those are serious questions and you obviously need sufficient materials and resources, but the way it's presented is, this is the essential problem with Afghanistan. And I think that's completely inaccurate if people read what was done at the time. Uh, how would you characterize the sort of the, I've been sketching what the mission was in contrast to what people expected it to be. How would you characterize what unfolded at that point? One of the things you said, uh, evoking Bush's rhetoric, that it's either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. It's worth pointing out or highlighting or underlining that it's the terrorists. So it's painted as you, you're painting it as there was this black and white rhetoric, but it's not the right, even black and white. So it's one, it's a problem that it's rhetoric that's not actually taken seriously. It is, there's not a follow through in terms of policy because it's not as though it's like 10 years after you realize, oh yeah, the Taliban fled and they weren't, some were killed, but not that many. They fled to the mountainous regions and the border with Pakistan. So it's the, one knew that was happening in real time in 2001 and 2002, that it, the, there was not an actual willingness. Once it was clear the Taliban uh, is not going to cooperate at all, there was not a willingness to actually go out and think, okay, then this enemy has to be destroyed. And part of that, and a significant part of it was an unwillingness to identify the enemy, that what the, we were facing was a regime in Afghanistan that was dedicated to a totalitarian vision and version of Islam. It's harboring people and, and terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda precisely because they share an ideology. And 
there was an unwillingness to face the fact that we have we're facing a religious ideology that has aspirations, however far-fetched you might think, but has aspirations for world domination, certainly domination in the Middle East. And they're committed to this. And then to think, okay, so what would it be like to defeat this? To defeat a movement and fighters who are dedicated to this. And there was a complete unwillingness to face that issue. I think for, for Bush, and the, I mean, the Bush administration in significant part because they would have to grapple with the issue that religions are not peaceful, they're not the path to prosperity. Um, so you got immediately after 9-11, oh, this is a hijacking of a great religion. Islam is a religion of peace like every other religion. Faith is the way to live. So, and um, it, it was a willful blindness to the actual enemy that you're fighting. So the idea that you can defeat an enemy that you are refused to identify is that's a fantasy. So it's what do you say then? What does it look like to go after an enemy that is moved by a set of ideas like this? What what does it entail other than just killing people and, and taking their weapons away? Um. I mean, it entails a number of things. Uh, can put a couple in, but uh, th there's more than this. It entails naming the ideology and naming the fact that you regard the ideology as evil and why you regard it as evil. So it's the same in the fight for communism. If you if you label the uh, the enemy as they're terrorists and they've hijacked a great socialism and so it's you don't have any understanding of what you're facing and what it means to demoralize the enemy that is that they will no longer take up arms in the name of the cause so you have to name the cause you have to name why you regard it as evil and you have to 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 say and then reinforce an actual action that we regard this as illegitimate to ever take up arms against us in the name of this ideology. And when you do, what you will be met with is destruction and death. This is the message that was conveyed. There's a lot of things wrong with World War II, like a lot of things wrong. But it was at least conveyed to say Japan, that if you take up this ideology, that puts you out of bounds. This is what turned you into an enemy. And the, they had to be demoralized that we dare not take up um, uh, this cause that is take it up seriously, try to get it into uh, government and politics. And that's never happened in Afghanistan. It, it was never conveyed that this ideology is beyond the pale and we will destroy you if you take it up and think, oh yeah, where we this animates us to be anti-American and anti-Western and to gives us legitimacy to rule the Middle East. Just one one concrete example of the way in which this was not part of the mission. Uh, at a at a certain point after the toppling of the Taliban, you might remember there was uh, American experts brought in to help de design the new constitution of Afghanistan. And, and 
I think what you might expect as a minimum for a, a new constitution for a country that you hope would be non-threatening at the end of this process would be that it, it be couched in secular terms and, and protect individual rights to some significant degree. And what you actually saw is America endorsing a constitution for Afghanistan that puts Islam at the center of the government as the, the fundamental source of law and source of right. And I think there were people at the time who were, were willing to dismiss that and say, well, that's of course what they want. Who are we to, to impose our views? And that in fact was the Bush administration's view. And that is really destructive a perspective. We, we can explore that a bit, but just what does it look like when you, what does it reveal about your understanding or lack of understanding of the enemy when you go and try to topple the Taliban who are applying Islam as a, as a totalitarian system and then replace and impose and install a constitution where Islam is still the fundamental principle of the government. And then in fact, what you see is that the, the Afghan government doesn't fully respect the kind of things you would expect it to respect, such as freedom of speech or freedom of religion. And there were in, within a couple of years of this going into, into effect, you see the Afghan government that is put in place by the US with support and endorsement going after people who were seen as apostates to Islam. Now, that what you see then is, okay, well, we're not really have any clue what the problem is. We don't think in terms of the, the role of these ideas in shaping a government. And it also means that the Afghan government, and I think this was true, it stands in relation to the Taliban as a compromiser on the same principle that they both share in common. Like if, if your government is predicated on Islam and your government is predicated on Islam on a totalitarian basis, well, you don't have any answer to the, the objections. You can't challenge their doctrine because what are you going to say? That Islam should not be part of government when your own constitution makes it uh, at the center? So. The, this was just one, and I think the constitution process in Afghanistan is interesting for other reasons, but just as an example of how at a, at a fundamental level, there was no conception of what we're dealing with to the point where you have an endorsement of the basic idea behind the Taliban in the new constitution. The... Yeah, and that's part of the whole premise of the nation building, that it's, um, th there's a, there was a kind of view in different forms that nation building, yeah, it's difficult in the sense that you need a lot of boots on the ground and you need money and you have to build some infrastructure, but no recognition of the ideas that it takes. So, it's already, there's an issue of why do we have to nation build in Afghanistan? The, what the actual goal should have been is to render them non-threatening. And you need a pretty uh, considerable argument like that it's, it's, it's a high bar to pass to say, to render it non-threatening, we have to nation build in Afghanistan. You have to understand that the essence of nation building is that they understand the ideas and value freedom. So they, they understand the ideas of freedom and everything that is required intellectually 
to implement it and that they're, they actually value that and are committed to that. That is very, very difficult in an area like this. I would think it's impossible, but you would have to at least be realistic. Right? This is really, really difficult in a, in a, in a semi-savage world where the ideas of freedom, of limited government, of if you think of the long history in the West to achieve good government, what that required in terms of people thinking and implementing better government and thinking, how do you get it even better? So it's an enormous achievement. And to think that you can, in five years, just teach people that, who have no understanding and no valuing of this, in the face of a crusading ideology that people at one level are sympathetic to, even if they think in some sense, yeah, the Taliban, that's an extreme version of Islam. And so it's still a version of Islam. And what we want is Islam to be at the core of our national life. And so it, it has to be something like the Taliban, but better. But how do you, why would it be better? And so there's, it, you're dealing with such an alien world in terms of its thinking about freedom and rights. And the idea that you can nation build in that environment um, should be seen as next to impossible. And the fact that it wasn't just reveals just how ideologically empty the, our side is. Like there's no understanding of the ideology on the other side or of the ideology that would have to be implemented to have even semi-freedom in Afghanistan. The podcast, we were talking about some of the, the ways in which the Afghan government was, is now being criticized. Why didn't they stand up for, in the face of the, uh, the Taliban onrushing in attempt to reconquer the country? You mentioned an example of some of the Afghan forces that were trained by the US as well. I think that one observation about that, and then one question for you. The observation I have is that there's a similar kind of issue about what it looks like to train people to fight combat. Now, it's, it's, it's not the same challenge as educating people or having the right ideas to appreciate what a free society looks like and all the foundational principles there. It's still a challenge to get people to see that when you're part of an army, you're part of a, a cohesive unit and you, there are orders and there's a chain of command. And it is that you are coordinating actions in a, on a grand scale. That's part of what it requires of any kind of campaign. And, and, and I think that was challenging. So you gave the example just before we connected about the ways in which some of the um, uh, Amer uh, American-trained military in Afghanistan were, they faced desertions, but not in the face of combat always. Maybe you could, I think that was an interesting anecdote. Yeah, some of the stories coming out. Of, so, so one of the questions is really, why was this so quick that the Taliban was able to overrun the country um, and get to the capital? I think most observers thought, yeah, Afghanistan is going to fall into the hands of the Taliban, but it might be six months, it might be a year, it might be a couple of years, there'll be civil war, there'll be a real fight but the Taliban will win. I think when you uh, leave aside sort of the political hand-waving that saying things that they hope that 
uh, it will last enough that I'm out of office, it will fall on someone else, uh, which is part of what has happened with Trump Biden, I think, that if you leave that aside and sort of take their off the record comments, everybody thought Afghanistan is going to be largely in the hands of the Taliban in a year or two. But the swiftness has surprised people. And some of it, so there's questions about why is it so swift? And some of the stories coming out uh, of the reporting is that the soldiers in the Afghan army, so uh, partly trained by American and Western forces, are fleeing, fleeing even before there's combat. And some of the what's described as sort of the reasoning is you can see just how tribal it is. So they're part of the army. They're put in regions where they have no um, personal state, but personal state partly means like this is not part of my tribe, um, my clan. I'm defending someone else. Why am I going to do that? And so they're leaving to go back to their villages. And if we're going to defend something, we're going to defend our villages. And this is part of the issue of the in war, when you've got one side that is fighting for what they think of as a crusading ideal, and the other side doesn't have any conception of what they're fighting for. So as you put it, they don't even think in terms of Afghanistan as a whole country that we need to defend. They certainly aren't gonna defend their government, which is a compromising, vacillating uh, politician. They, they don't inspire any confidence or uh, any admiration. And more broadly, and this is the issue about nation building, it's they don't have any positive ideal of their own. Um, and this is where something like democracy fits in. No matter how much um, hand waving and flag waving we do it, oh, you should be fighting for democracy. Nobody's going to fight for the right to vote. I mean, the people vote in Russia. It is not a significant thing to be able to, to vote. It's significant in the context of a whole free society and electing representatives freely in a system that has an actual constitution, actual rights on the part of citizens, actual limits on the government's power. But democracy as a form of government, that it's only if we could vote, then everything is great. Nobody will actually fight for that. So no matter how much you train them and tell them, oh, you're building democracy in Afghanistan, it is rightly seen as hollow. And so when it comes to actual war and you want people to fight, if people don't have an ideal for which they're fighting, the, the, the idea that they're gonna fight for long is again, a fantasy. So why don't we spend a few minutes talking about the, how things unfolded. So uh, we've described some of the Bush administration's approach to this and the foundational errors. If, I would characterize it. One of the things that Obama was trying to do, he, he was sort of the anti-Bush in every respect when he ran for office, and particularly on foreign policy, which was a much bigger deal uh, while the Iraq war was still going on. And I think at the time of the campaign, the Iraq war was going so badly, it was uh, nobody really wanted to talk about it. So Obama comes along and he's the anti-Bush. And so he claims with respect to Afghanistan to have a plan that would take things in a better direction. And this was that he, I think the two interesting things about it were asked, what do you think it looks like? What does the end of this look like? How do we, what is the picture at the end of this war? 
Is it something like what happened after World War II with Japan, where there's a signing of a unconditional surrender and things follow from there? Obama, and this was really significant to me at the time, Obama said, no, that's not what we're heading for. I don't think we should even think in those terms. And I don't even like the word, to associate the word victory with Afghanistan. And this was, in some ways, this was not really any kind of departure from Bush. This was just another uh, way of, of viewing the issue as uh, this is not resolvable. Because by the time, it wasn't long until Bush admitted that what we're dealing with is a no-win kind of war. It was, I think he had given up hope that this whole fantasy of, I mean, maybe not publicly in every instance, but I think he, this idea that this was going to become a, a, a beacon of democracy and freedom, I think that faded very quickly. I think Obama had no illusions that that was going to happen, but he also had no, no conception of what it would look like to end the conflict in, uh, in terms that were consistent with American interests. And the, the other thing that Obama did is he, I think he tested, maybe not wittingly, but he tested one of the theories that people uh, put forward as a criticism of the Bush administration. So a, a very kind of concrete bound criticism was that the Bush administration lost focus in Afghanistan and they didn't have enough people on the ground and that explains everything. And this was true for a, a number of years. So the, the losing of focus was he, he became obsessed with going after Iraq. Afghanistan was not on uh, front of uh, attention and they didn't have sufficient personnel. And I think what Obama did as, uh, later in his term was, okay, well, the, the problem really is insufficient resources and particularly troops. And so they, they moved many more troops into the country and that without changing anything fundamental at the way the operations were being handled or even the, nothing changed in terms of the goals. And that I think was a way of showing that that can't really be the fundamental problem because when you change this variable that people were complaining about, it doesn't really have any difference, a different effect. So I, I think it's, it's important to see that it, the essential really goes to what we were talking about earlier, which is the conception of the enemy and what it would look like to defeat it. None of those were really on the table in the way people approach this under Bush or even Obama. Uh, and I think that the, uh, with a lot of these things, it's easy to forget and there's a, a strong need to forget by some people because they don't want to face the truth. Uh, but it's really critical to look back at a lot of these things. And, and this reminds me, I want to mention, just before we, I hand it back to you for other comments. So we, we put together a book five years ago called Failing to Confront Islamic Totalitarianism. And knowing the, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 was coming up, we decided to issue a second expanded edition. And it has the same title, but the subtitle is now uh, What Went Wrong After 9-11. And it, it encompasses about 20 years worth of commentary from the Ayn Rand Institute going all the way back to the days after 9-11, uh, analyzing how things, ha why it happened and what it would look like to respond in a rational way, consistent with the principles of egoism and capitalism. A and so this book, which is now, it was scheduled to release in, in September to mark the anniversary of 9-11. Th that's still gonna happen. The paperback will be out, but we decided to release it in PDF today, given everything that's going on with Afghanistan. And I think it's important for people to be able to find it. So uh, we're putting this on the screen for people, people who are only able to listen, you can find it in the show notes or following the bit.ly link 
bit.ly slash FCIT2, numeral two. Uh, so, and the reason I mentioned the book, partly I think it's important for people to go and explore it, but partly because it, it covers four different administrations practically, and it speaks to some of the issues that came up along the way, such as the, the, the way Obama tried to uh, resolve the problem and how that was proven to be not even close to the essential issue on, uh, in terms of understanding what was going on in Afghanistan or, or in the wider conflict with this Islamist movement. Uh, because one of the things Obama did, of course, was demonstrate his own ignorance and unwillingness to recognize him by, by embracing what is a central component of the Islamist movement, which is Iran. And this, this was, it's another to topic for another day, but that was the, the nuclear deal with Iran. But I think it speaks to the same kind of failure that if you think Iran is merely a problem because of its nuclear program, you're not even close to understanding what Iran's role is with respect to the wider Islamist movement of which the Taliban, the Al-Qaeda, Al Saudi Arabia, Iran, and others are components uh, in, on a wider scale. And it's crucial to understand Iran, to understand what was so wrong with the war in Iraq and the whole thinking behind it and the so-called strategy behind it that it, it, it but it, and it was again flowing out of Iraq in comparison to Iran was an easy target because it wasn't seen as it's dedicated to Islam it's part of this whole new movement that has arisen in the Middle East we're not going to take that on but Iraq everybody says who Saddam Hussein is a butcher and a SOB that no one can objectively remove him from power. So, it, so to understand what happened in Iraq, you have to understand our unwillingness to confront Iran and why we were unwilling and remain unwilling to confront, confront Iran. Part of what you said about Obama uh, uh, is important and that the, the, that he was partly elected because he championed the fact that he was against the Iraq war and voted against it. And so thought, well, but it, it's the wrong war. So what's the right war? Well, I guess it's Afghanistan. We'll have to do something. But the way you painted it, I think is exactly right. It's no strategy and no end point that it's, no, we can't achieve victory. So what are we trying to do? There's no answer to that. And that for a president of the United States is evil. Um, to set, so this is what is so horrifying about what is happening in Afghanistan now. When you read some of our reader here, listen to some of what the soldier, US soldiers who have been in Afghanistan it, it, in some time in the, the last 20 years and thought like we're trying to accomplish something. We're trying to do something. Uh, and it, 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 this is tremendously difficult. Uh, I've been injured. My um, fellow soldiers, I've seen fellow soldiers killed. But it's got to be for something. It's, we have to be accomplishing something. And for them now to be seen as a, so the Taliban is going to come back into power and we're going to be where we were 20 years ago. And then when you read some of the personal stories, in a sense, it's worse than 20 years ago because they know what is going to happen to the collaborators and they can rightly feel 
they shouldn't, but I can, this is completely understandable, that they will feel guilt for that, that these people probably had a better chance of success if I wasn't there. And if I wasn't working with them, and if they didn't collaborate with me, like I've somehow helped bring um, an end to their lives because we asked them to collaborate. That was part of my job to do that. And now we've completely abandoned them. And to do that to soldiers is really inhuman. To one, just to give them a mission and tell them, yeah, of course, there's no victory here that's possible. So why are you sending them into uh, armed conflict when you're telling them victory is impossible? Not that it's going to be hard, that it's impossible. And then to make them engage in which it really isn't a soldier's duties, but to make them engage in nation building. And then to completely abandon the people who they've been working with. It's, I mean, to do that to a soldier, uh, you should lose your job as a president to do that. And Biden's kind of commentary, I know he's going to be speaking again today, but his commentary up to now is has been so abysmally amoral. So it would have been one thing to say, we've done a lot wrong in Afghanistan. It's mostly not when I was in power. I've screwed up the withdrawal and so on. But the pain is like, well, I've done nothing wrong and da, 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 and it was yeah, what are you going to do? And they have to fight for themselves. It is, um, I mean, I have a very low opinion of Biden, but it went considerably lower with this episode. Yeah, I, on on just a, a thought about the Biden reaction to this, there are a number of talking points that have come up. One is what you're describing. It's their turn to take up arms. They, they should be responsible for themselves. And I agree with your assessment of that. The other thing that has come up is, well, we were handed an, a peace agreement that the Trump administration signed, and, uh, and we're bound by that. So what do you expect us to do? We did something. We adjusted the timeline to make it a little better, but it's you know, so shifting the blame to Trump. And that, I mean, that's, a, that's a, a cowardly thing to do. But it's worth saying that the deal that the Trump administration signed is crazy on its face. Like the idea that you can sign any kind of peace accord with the Taliban, leaving aside the fact that it's just, it, it, it's so demoralizing for all the people who fought against the Taliban to, real, to see our, the US respecting the Taliban as a legitimate peace partner. And this is one of the ways it was seen. The idea that whatever the terms of this deal are, the, the idea that they would abide by their side of it and that you can take seriously that these people have some common ground with you, uh, it is just, it's in the realm of fantasy. And there are people not necessarily in the Trump administration, but who are supportive of this deal because it was brewing for years even before Trump came along. One of the justifications they give to this, and I think this goes back to the theme that we've been talking about, which is this complete uh, unawareness and, and refusal to see the nature of this enemy, the Islamist movement, the evasion of it. The justifications that have been put forward for that deal, which was uh, eventually signed during the Trump team is that, well, look, the Taliban have changed. They've moderated. They've become more amenable to the, the idea that there could be some role for women in society, that you don't have to stone them to death for adultery. You don't have to do all these barbaric medieval punishments. So this whole idea that they've softened, so there's room for them to improve and having a deal will make them go in our direction even more because we can now influence them. And 
that is just, it's a, it's a very common script that you hear when people are trying to justify making deals with people they should not even be sitting down with. And it was, I think in this case in particular, it was laughable on its face. This is the Taliban who has, whose trademark is uncompromising commitment to their goals and who have lived up to it in a grim way for 20 plus years while they were in power and since they were in power. And their whole uh, appeal to the people that they, they rule is we bring order, but it's, it's totalitarian order as opposed to the chaos that you see elsewhere. So the, the idea that this, that you could tell ourselves that the Taliban have somehow softened in any meaningful way that this, it's so, it's both anti-intellectual and amoral. It's not really beginning to understand what this group is about. We went from immediately after 9-11 to you're either with us or you're against us, pronounced in part to the Taliban to 20 years later, maybe the Taliban's not so bad. And if that isn't a abject failure of foreign policy, it's hard to know what is. And it, as you said, it's every administration, Republican or Democrat, it's pathetic what they have done. But the flip side is a foreign policy takes real thinking. Uh, you put it, it's anti, uh, what we're witnessing now is anti-intellectual and no values. And what a foreign policy requires is one understanding what you value, where you see it in the world. So who actually are friends and enemies? And then a whole conception of thinking what actually is in our interest? What do we have to do to promote our interests? And the, the political world we live in today is those two questions nobody will face, nobody can deal with. They can't, they have no, if you ask what is in America's interest and how do you think about that? There's no answer to that. What do we value, what do we stand for? There's our democracy or so, or, and, but even there, it's letting people vote whatever regime they want into power. I mean, that's what it was in Iraq and in, in, with the Palestinians in Afghanistan. And it, so you can't have a foreign policy unless you have real thinking about what is in our interest. How do we think about that? What is it that we're value? What, what do we think is good? And therefore, what do we think is evil? And we live in a world that is depressingly anti-intellectual and without values. Just one thought before we start to take a few questions. I think of this moment, I think August 15 will be a day people will remember grimly and rightly as this was the fall of, of Kabul and the fall of Afghanistan. And it, it, it is a stain on America's history and a stain particularly on America's foreign policy. And I blame the foreign policy makers, not the military. But I, I, I mean, another way to put the point you were just making on car is that this is a, a it's not even a declaration, it's just grand scale evidence of the bankruptcy, intellectual bankruptcy of American foreign policy. Like, I don't think, I, I, I've not had any illusion that we have a coherent approach to the world. And I think the last 20 years have demonstrated that, but, if, if we've gone from trying to overthrow the Taliban to, well, if we can just cut a deal with them, that, that is just 
such a low point that one of the consequences of that, you, you, you pointed to the way in which people around the world will see us and what the implications there are for allies and how we treat people who work with us. I think this will be something that affects the way we view the efficacy of our military. And so you know, imagine that we've faced a, a significant threat. My, my concern is that we will be in a position of thinking, well, military can't solve problems like this. What are we going to do? We're going to have another Afghanistan, another Iraq. And this is a way in which when you have an unprincipled, amoral approach to foreign policy, it fails. And then it, it disarms you when the next time comes and you think you really do need to take action in self-defense. And I think this is where we are. And it's, it's magnified, at least when people remembered Bush and his impact. I think it, it has a lasting impact. People, we said at the beginning of the conversation how people saw him as, well, this is what it looks like to stand up for America. And he was seen as strong and robust. And if that's the high, high bar, then we really don't have anywhere further down to go because that was nothing like what it means to, to pursue American interests. So we're in this position where Bush is equated with being tough. It was a dismal failure from top to bottom for 20 years. And now it's, it's punctuated by this collapse with scenes of, I mean, of Afghanistan falling apart and American diplomats being shipped out and having to destroy things in the embassy because they don't, they know it's going to be used against us. It is such a collapse that will, I think, put us at a significant position of weakness with respect to future threats that we have to deal with. And the flip side of that is our enemies will also see it like that. So they will think the, the rhetoric um, in, in the 90s and into the, the sort of just before 9-11 is that America is a paper tiger, that it might talk tough, but it is unable to act. And that, unfortunately, I think is the lesson that will be learned from the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. And it can take decades to play out. So after the rise of uh, the Islamic totalitarians in Iran and the seizure of the American embassies and our futile policy in regard to that, Ayn Rand said it will take us years to live this down. And I think she was prophetic about that. She was right, but she was right because she could see what it means and what lessons will be drawn about this, both in America but around the world about it. And so that, that after that, that America was seen as a paper tiger, and then we did further things in the Middle East that just reinforced that we're a paper tiger. It, I mean, it's almost 20 years from the, the seizure of the American embassy to 9-11, but that's the scale you have to think about in terms of foreign policy when, it, when you say that this is the lesson that will be learned and that we'll be facing this, it doesn't mean next year, it means in the decades to come. This is, you have emboldened these people and that will have ramifications. You can't predict exactly what it will be, but you can get why it would embolden them. And I'm the real, uh, one of the real worries is we've done it again, what we did after um, the 
the seizure of the embassy in Iran. So why don't we take a few questions in the time we have. Thank you to all of you who, who are watching uh, on YouTube, on Zoom and other channels. And thanks to those of you who've uh, posted YouTube Super Chat donations. We appreciate your support. Thank you. Uh, let's see, uh, we have a long list of questions. I, I regret we won't get to them all today, but we might be able to roll some of them into another occasion. So let me see, is there one that leaps out at you that you wanna start with? Do you, the, one of the super chat questions about this is about the Soviets in Afghanistan. Um, I think, uh, and so the question was, why did the Soviets fail in Afghanistan? It, it's some of the things that we've been talking about, I think are worth thinking about in regard to that. So one is what are the Soviets and the Soviet soldiers fighting for? Um, by that time, I think in the minds of most Russians, communism was discredited. So that's different than say the, with Islam and the Taliban, they still think, yeah, we should have a world that's ruled by Islam. That would be good. We need to fight for this. There was, so on the part of the Russian soldiers, there was no will to fight, I think. And when you read about some of what happened there, um, that comes through. And the, but because this is relevant to thinking of foreign policy from a long-term perspective, the Taliban in various ways is American funded and American armed. And it, it's the kind of view that the enemy of my enemy has to be my friend, which is not true. So it, it dates, I think, all the way back to the inability to understand Iran to understand the new phenomenon arising in the Middle East, which is a crusading Islam, that played out in Afghanistan from the American side as well. So I think from the Soviet side, they don't understand. So you have uh, opposition that is animated by the ideology and you have an army that isn't interested in communism really and fighting for it. And then we also can understand in the West and the US, so we help arm. Uh, enemy that's dedicated to totalitarian Islam. And when, it, when one says, like, that's a mistake, it doesn't mean the consequences will be borne out in two or three years. But if you, again, think of decades, you can see how that has come back to haunt. So another question here in, uh, from YouTube uh, is asking about the actions taken in post-war Japan by MacArthur. And I think this is in contrast to what we've been describing in Afghanistan. I'll say one brief thing about that. There were certainly many things in the, the post-war period in Japan that I think were really good. And some of them have to do with uh, the way in which the, the goals were set and so on. But the two things about this issue, one, Japan, there was a clear, decisive victory. And it was known and felt by the Japanese and they gave up, they surrendered. And it was a, something that I think some Japanese welcomed because they, they knew the war would be over and they no longer have to live under this kind of government. But even the, the people leading this government recognized, well, we can't do this anymore. We're not gonna succeed. And that I think is a critical step. So it goes to the point you made earlier on car about the need to destroy the will to fight, to demoralize the enemy. And I think that was a critical part 
of what made it possible to have anything in post-war Japan, whether good or bad. And then on the post-war execution and what MacArthur did, so he was the supreme commander of the post-war period, there are really good things about what they did, including purging people who run, ran the former government, pre preventing them from having positions of authority, uh, injecting better ideas into the constitution and into the schools, remodeling the school system. And in effect, one way to think of it was an attempt to remove any vestige of the former ideology that was ruling Japan and that had come to dominate people's thinking and, and, and shaped and animated that whole war effort. I don't think everything that was done in post-war Japan went well or, or at to plan. I think there, there were compromises along the way, but it, it definitely was a successful uh, effort. I think much, if we could have done a third of what was done in Japan, so the, the issue of successfully defeating the enemy and then having a conception of what it looks like to root out that ideology, if we'd done at least that, the whole situation in the Middle East would have looked radically different. So there's definitely lessons to take from that, but uh, I wouldn't take it as a one-for-one a one, uh, uh, formula because there are definitely things that didn't go right and didn't go well. Maybe uh, time for one more question. Sure. How about taking this one? Um, is there anyone out there besides the Ayn Rand Institute saying anything sensible about the events of Afghanistan? In a fundamental sense, I think the answer is no. And that points to this, the whole of 9-11, what led to it and what came afterwards has to be thought of in philosophical terms. Formulating a foreign policy is not easy. You have to have a con real conception of your interests as a nation and for you, the US as a world power, what that means, what actually is in your interest, how to pursue it. And then you have to look at the world in moral terms. Who's on our side? That is, who do we view as good? Who do we view as bad? And who do we view as mixed? And you have to think of all of that and the implications for action. And this of what is in our interest, what is good, what is evil, these are philosophical questions. And if you don't have the right philosophy, you cannot answer these questions. So we have a definite view at the Ayn Rand Institute of what makes America great and that it goes back to its founding ideals, but not in the sense what this is our tradition. It's that these ideals are true and we have reasons to think of why they're true. So there's a whole viewpoint here of the, the best of America, its founding ideals as enunciated in the Declaration of Independence as animating the constitution of animating uh, the, the, the country's laws and the progress that it has made from inception to now. Uh, we have a view of what is right about this, like what, why individual rights are the basis of proper government, how to think about that, what kind of government it leads to, and therefore how to think of one's own interests as a nation, that we're not here to be the world's policemen, we're not, we do not think of, of just helping out any country, this kind of uh, what you can call altruism in foreign affairs that it's every country that is in need and so on. it's our obligation because we have so much money, wealth, power, 
to help them and to bail them out. So if we're not the world's policemen, we're the world's nurse helping everybody. That is not a proper conception of what our foreign policy is, what should animate it, what is in our interest. Um, so so it, it, foreign policy is in the end philosophical. And if you don't have the right ph philosophy, you cannot think uh, in the right terms what our goals should be and how to pursue them. And to just give one different example than the Middle East and 9-11, most people hold up World War II as, okay, that was good. Ayn Rand's view of World War II was it was an enormous sacrifice of American wealth and of American soldiers, that we should not have been involved in World War II. We should have let Germany and Russia destroy themselves. We should have armed ourselves, but not have gone to war. And it's our responsibility to bail out the Western powers who've completely looked the other way as Hitler rose to power, whether you're talking about the Britain or France or the rest of Western Europe, that it was, um, they should have experienced the full impact of their decisions, of what they did. And the aftermath of World War II was that communism sweeps a third of the globe. So she thought of this is, was a massive failure. And you can only think of that from, you can only see it in that way if you're thinking philosophically and if you have a real conception of what America's interests are. So there's no one saying what the Iron Institute is saying about foreign policy. And the reason is there's no one who holds a philosophy anything resembling objectivism. And if you don't, you can't see clearly what the issues are um, and where good lies and where evil lies. With that, let's draw a line here. And if people want to explore more about what the Institute has been saying since 9-11, I encourage you to take a look at the book I mentioned. It's called Failing to Confront Islamic Totalitarianism, What Went Wrong After 9-11. We are publishing it today on our website. You can find it on our journal, newideal.einrand.org. And if you want a shortcut URL, you can get it at bit.ly slash F-C-I-T-2. And that's all caps and numeral two at the end. We'll put, definitely put that in the show notes. I encourage people. So the PDF is available for free and the Kindle and paperback will be available at whatever nominal price we can find uh, on Amazon when that comes out. Uh, in a few weeks, I hope. So thank you all for being here. Thanks for all your questions. If you are enjoyed this program and think others should find out about it, please like and share it on whatever platform you're using. And you can subscribe to this channel, click on the bell, you'll get notifications. We'd love to you to be back with us next time. And, and comments, we read what you say. Uh, if you're on other platforms, definitely spread the word as best you can. We'd love to have a larger audience. If you have questions about today's discussion, or if you want to suggest other topics, or if you have questions in general, we'd love to hear from you. Write to us, newideal at einrand.org. We read everything. We try to respond to a lot of the questions, and many of the questions often spur some of these podcasts that you're watching uh, here with us today. So thank you all. We'll be back here again uh, on Wednesday, our usual time, on a, with a different topic, uh, and that will be with Onkar Gate, who's here today, and with my colleague, Ben Baer. We'll be discussing something that we, uh, I forget exactly what the topic is, but you'll see it. There it is. Why are objectivists so negative? Which is uh, 
I think a provocative title for a really important topic that will be discussed on Wednesday. So I hope uh, you can make it for then. And if not, uh, we'll see you. You can listen to us on demand on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.